Brethren, in Jude verse 3, we won't turn to it, we are reminded, we're actually exhorted very strongly to contend for the faith once delivered. And we're told to to struggle, to fight, uh, to hold on to that truth, that faith that God has delivered to the church through Jesus Christ, of course, through the apostles. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I won't turn there either, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 7 and 8 and 9, a beautiful, beautiful passage. It was my wife's uh, uh, grandmother's famous passage of scripture. And we're told that the trials of our faith are precious in God's sight and that God's doing something with us and in us when we are tried, when our faith is tried. There are many scriptures that talk about a Christian's obligation to run a long race, uh, that we are to strive for the goal, the upward call, the crown. Many, many passages. Paul writes about uh, the race of endurance. Do you ever wonder if you'll have the strength to finish that Christian race until the very end, until Christ returns or until you go to sleep and you wait, as the Bible talks about death being like a sleep, you wait until the return of the Messiah. What about when serious trials come? Do you wonder if you'll have the strength to prevail, persevere, overcome those trials? A Christian journey, a Christian life, for most of us, will be more of a marathon than a sprint. There are sometimes exceptions, but for most of us, it will be a marathon, not a sprint. How can we ensure that we prevail, persevere in the long run? One more scripture that we won't turn to is 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 13, where we're exhorted to not grow weary in doing good. Many verses, brethren, many verses, many passages where God talks about through uh, Jesus Christ or the apostles or the prophets in the Old Testament, the fact that our race is a long race. It's one of endurance. We're not called to be passive uh, observers. <clears throat> Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Very familiar, very famous, very encouraging. We'll use Hebrews chapter 12 to launch into the sermon uh, today. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2. You're familiar with this passage, I hope. Here God inspires uh, for our benefit for our edification as well as for those in the first and second centuries and down through the generations in God's church, that we are surrounded, since we're surrounded, by so great a cloud of witnesses. Speaking of those great examples in the Bible, those patriarchs and matriarchs and prophets and those great lights that have gone before us, and those also brethren who lived after the Bible was Uh, codified and was canonized. There are those we remember fondly that have died in the faith, and I would consider many of them uh, witnesses to God's glory and to the power of the Holy Spirit working in people so that people can live uh, lives uh, worthy of being called by God. I would include them. 
So since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, most likely this is Paul, he tells us to lay aside every weight. Now notice that it's possible for us as Christians to be brought down by weight. Right there, again, we're reminded. This is written to the ecclesia, to the church, to the converted. And here we're reminded yet again to lay aside those distractions, those cares, those weights that can so easily ensnare us, those sins that can trap us. And let us run with endurance. That marathon, that long race for most of us, that is set before us by God, the Father, by Jesus Christ, uh, our Lord and the Messiah. Verse 2, we're to look to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And so we are to look to him uh, for strength. He endured the cross, as it goes on to talk about in verse 2. Brethren, will we persevere to the end? Will we persevere until God allows us to go to sleep in the faith or Christ returns in glory? Maybe just a few years or a decade or two, we don't know, uh, down the road. I'd like to go through a few examples in the sermon today, brethren. We are encouraged here in Hebrews chapter 12 to consider that uh, those many witnesses uh, that can be edifying to us. Uh, so I'm going to go through a couple examples that are a little less familiar uh, first, and we'll look at some examples of really encouraging faith. But they're interesting examples. They're a little obscure, but they're interesting for a reason that I'll mention in a moment. And then we'll look and spend more time with a third example, a third example, and draw lessons from this individual's life. Uh, sobering lessons, very sobering lessons. A lot of parallels between this third individual and what God warns the spirit of Laodicea will be like at the end of the age. So you'll see some parallels. And then if we have time, we'll go through some practical steps so that we can build faith. I won't give you the title quite yet. I want to save that uh, for later. Let's begin the sermon by turning back to Exodus chapter 1. And look at a couple lesser-known examples of of faith, wonderful examples of faith. Exodus chapter 1. These are two individuals that were put under just the most extreme, most intense uh, weight that you you could think of. If you if you understand their story, let's let's put ourselves into into the time that these individuals live. These two ladies in Exodus chapter one. Now you're familiar with this time in Israel's history. Uh, Joseph and the Pharaoh who had known Joseph were now long dead, and the Israelite slave population was increasing, and the Egyptians began to fear that the Israelites would revolt, and so a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph did not respect him or the promises that the previous Pharaoh had made, uh, issued an edict. And you're familiar with that. The edict was to murder the newborn Israelite male children. And so that edict went out to the midwives. And so we have these two ladies. We don't know much about their story. But, boy, it is a phenomenal example, their faith. Let's review real quickly the story of Zip. Uh, Zipra and Pua, Zipra and Pua, P-U-A-H, and Shipra, or Zipra. We begin in verse 6. 
Joseph had died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty. And the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the children of Israel uh, are more and mightier than we. They're growing in population. They're becoming a threat. Verse 10, so come, let us deal wisely with them or shrewdly with them. So that if there's a war, they will not join against our enemies. I'm going to skim through this for sake of time. And so verse 11, he set taskmasters over them to afflict them with burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. They were afflicted with severe affliction. Verse 12. But the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. The Egyptians were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made them serve with even harder rigor, verse 13. And they made their lives bitter. This is a terrible time, a time of national slavery. We were very familiar with the history here. And they made them make bricks and build the cities, verses 14 and 15. And then here we have in verse 15, this Pharaoh who does not uh, know Joseph, he sees Israel as a threat, and he speaks of Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other was Pua. Now, what if this were you? What if this were you? And he said to them, and he, hold, he held their life in his hands, humanly speaking. We know God ultimately does and did, but he called to them, and he said, when you do the duties of a midwife, verse 16, and you see the Hebrew women sitting on the birth stools. If it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, they shall live. Notice verse 17. But the midwives feared God. They feared God. Amazing faith. They feared God. We won't turn to it, but Proverbs 16, verse 6 tells us that the fear of the eternal allows us to depart from evil. When you fear God more than the Pharaoh, when you fear God more than your boss, when you fear God more than the policeman, when you fear God more than the bully, when you fear God more than anything else, you will depart from evil and evil will depart from you. You may have trials, but there are many, many promises where God tells us that if you fear him, put him first. He'll provide ultimately deliverance. Maybe you'll go through trials in the meantime. Maybe your ultimate deliverance will be in the resurrection. But if you fear God more than anything else, you'll depart from evil and you won't do evil. And so these two Hebrew midwives whom Pharaoh could have taken and killed, he could have killed their families, he could have put them in worse bondage, They feared God and did not do as the king commanded them. Reminds me of the apostles in the New Testament when they told the authorities, we have to obey God rather than man. Reminds me of the heart, you know, in Jeremiah 23, verse 32. Jeremiah 32 uh, talks about Israel coming out of the the second uh, captivity, out of the great tribulation, the day of the Lord. Jeremiah 32, verse 39. And it says that God's going to put into them a heart where they'll fear him, where they'll fear him. 
We're going to talk about how to develop that fear of God, a proper fear of God today in the sermon. So they feared God more than the king of Egypt, and they saved the male children alive. Would we have had that boldness that they had? So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And saved the male children alive. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptians and so forth, they're lively. You know, the truth in that. But I think, did they sort of delay maybe making it to the house? Did they maybe get distracted on the way to their job? Probably. If they arrived in the house uh, and the mother was giving birth, did they maybe get distracted with uh, something over here in the corner of the room a little bit? Notice verse 20. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew. And so it was because the midwives feared God. That he provided for their families. He provided households for for them. He protected them and their families. Wow. Wow. What examples of faith? What about in the years to come? If we find ourselves under duress such as this. Will we have the faith and the fear of the eternal that the midwives show? You know, God doesn't indicate... Uh, in scripture that that they had the Holy Spirit. He just says that they feared him. They feared him. But it's interesting when you consider the story of Zipporah and Pua. We don't know if they continued in faith, do we? The Bible just doesn't say. Scripture just doesn't say. We have this one account. It's amazing. How many lives did they save? What, what further, you know, patriarchs, prophets, apostles maybe came from the children that they saved? Maybe some of the 12 apostles descended directly from some of the babies that they saved. Maybe some of us did. How many thousands and tens of thousands of lives did they save because of the families that were born from those babies that they saved? Amazing, but God doesn't tell us the rest of the story. Did they run their race with perseverance till the end? We just don't know. We, I'd like to think they did. But the Bible just doesn't indicate. Sometimes God tells us the end of the matter with these examples of faith. Sometimes he doesn't. With Shipra and Pua, he doesn't tell us the end of the story. But they feared God. And if you fear God more than anything else, then you'll depart from evil. That's a principle. And evil will depart from you. Now, to fear God is to revere him. It's to put him in awe. It's to revere him and and to see him as awesome. Not to be afraid of him, but to see him as awesome. That's the heart that God will put into Israel when they come out of the second uh, captivity, the the second uh, exodus after the day of after the great tribulation and the day of the Lord. Again, Jeremiah 23, or sorry, 32, and it's verse 39. My eye fell on that, uh, mentions that. Let's look at another example. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 22. Another example of tremendous faith from the pages of the Old Testament. 1 Kings chapter 22. And here we have a few generations later, Micaiah. 
someone else that you're probably a little familiar with. He demonstrated a tremendous courage, tremendous faith. He feared the eternal in a tremendous, tremendous way. First Kings chapter 22, we need to move quickly. And let's just skim through it, but let's begin in verse 1. So let's set the stage here. We have what we're going to read about are uh, Jehoshaphat, uh, king of Judah, and uh, king Ahab of Israel. King Ahab of Israel, basically not a good king. Jehoshaphat, decent guy. And the 400 prophets who come and uh, they lie, they're lying prophets, and they tell King Ahab, you're going to succeed, you're going to conquer, you're going to prevail in this battle. So that's the story. <clears throat> and then they bring in Micaiah, a, a true prophet of God, and they put him on the spot. What does, he, what does he do in that environment? Does he demonstrate faith? You, you know the story, so you know he does, but Hebrews tells us to uh, review these examples, so let's do that briefly. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 1, Now three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. Uh, at this time, Israel and Judah were sometimes allies, sometimes not. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth and Gilead is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? So the king of Israel, uh, who was Ahab, is talking to his servants, and Jehoshaphat's visiting, and he says, Listen, Ramoth and Gilead belongs to Israel, and we want it back, but the Syrians have it. So Ahab, verse 4, said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight at Ramoth-Gilead? He wants an alliance to go fight against Syria. And Jehoshaphat responds in verse 4, I am as you are, my people is yours, my horses is yours, so we're going to make an alliance. Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, however, please inquire for the word of the Lord today. So Jehoshaphat wisely, as it tells us in Proverbs a number of times, uh, he wants counsel. He wants counsel before he goes off to make war. And so verse 6 tells us that the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. Now we can look back on this story and it can seem kind of humorous, but I want you to put yourself in the, the reality that Micaiah is going to enter into. Just like the midwives, generations before, would we demonstrate the faith that Micaiah is going to demonstrate here in just a few verses? You've got these two kings, 400 prophets, their household guard, the soldiers, the nobility. They're all standing around. These 400 prophets come in. And what do they say? Verses 6 and 7. He asks them if they should go up and fight. And they say in verse 6, go up for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, is there still not a prophet of the eternal here that we may inquire of him? We don't know. All the details, but Jehoshaphat understood that these were lying prophets. They were lying prophets. And he said, is there a real prophet here that we can ask for God's uh, wisdom, God's guidance, God's counsel? So verse 8, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there's still one man, Micaiah, the son of Imla, by whom we may inquire of the eternal, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. So Jehoshaphat did not want God's prophet to be spoken evil of. 
Then the king of Israel, verse 9, called an officer and said, Bring Micaiah, the son of Imla, quickly. And so the king of Israel and, Jude, and, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on the robe, sat each on his throne. And so all the prophets are there. There's the 400 prophets. There's the household guards, the royal guards, the nobility, the princes, the family, the priests. Pretty intimidating scene. Pretty intimidating scene. And so verses 11 and 12, we, we read that um, this other uh, prophet, Zedekiah, he comes in and he had made these horns of iron for himself. And he says, with these you'll gore the, the Syrians until they're destroyed. There's a little inset there. Just to show you in that court scene how, you know, how worked up they were. This was, a, this was a, an out-of-control court where the king of Israel was getting unwise counsel, deceitful counsel, to go attack the Syrian king. And then here you have Zedekiah coming in and goading him on, saying, go and, and attack. And all the prophets, verse 12 said, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper. The eternal will deliver it into the king's hand. Verse 13. Then, so after this amount of time, right? Because, because Micaiah was not there at the court. He was off a ways. So they sent for him and, and he, he arrives in verse 13. He had gone to get Micaiah. So the messenger who, who, who went to Micaiah spoke to Micaiah saying, now listen, the words of the prophets are with one accord and they encourage the king. You talk about peer pressure. You talk about peer pressure. I've never been through something as intense as this, and I doubt you have either. You've got a couple friends in school that want to do something wrong. That doesn't compare to this. You've got some friends at work that want to do something wrong. That doesn't compare to this. Your aunts or uncles or grandparents don't like that you keep the Sabbath or the holy days. That doesn't compare to this. This was intense. And so Micaiah, verse 14, <clears throat> answers and says, As the eternal lives, whatever the eternal says to me, that I will speak. I, he feared the eternal. Even if it would cost him his life. Which it didn't, but he feared the eternal more, I believe, than even death. So then verse 15, Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, and I think this was with great sarcasm. Micaiah says, go, prosper, the eternal will deliver you. It's what you want to hear. And so the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the eternal? And so then Micaiah tells him this, this prophecy, this vision. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains. I need to speed up just for sake of time. But he gives them this vision of Israel without their shepherd. And verse 19, he tells them, therefore, hear the word of the eternal. I saw the eternal sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by at his right hand and at his left. And so this is like the account in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2 where God, remember, God is supreme. Satan and the demons are insignificant in comparison to God, the eternal, they are insignificant. And so here we have another insight into God's throne and, and the, the uh, spirit world has to obey him and come report to him certain ones. We don't know all the details and how it's organized. But here we have an example of a lying spirit that goes up before God's throne. And it says, I'll persuade him, verse 1. And the eternal says, in what way? And he says, I'll go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. 
these prophets who obviously were not close to the eternal. God would not allow you, if you're close to him, to have a lying spirit uh, deceive you that way. And so verse 23, Micaiah, Micaiah continues. Now, therefore, look, the eternal put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. Not prophets of God, prophets of yours. And the eternal has declared disaster on you. And so Zedekiah goes and strikes him and so forth. We don't have time for all the rest of the story. Ahab ends up dying in battle. God says that he finds some good in Jehoshaphat and spares him. Second Chronicles 19 verse 3 tells us that. Would you or I have had that boldness, that faith, that resilience, that closeness to God in that example? So we've seen two examples, the midwives and then Micaiah. But as with the midwives, God also doesn't tell us the rest of the story regarding Micaiah. We don't know. Indications are he was a righteous prophet, and we hope that he stayed faithful, but we just don't know. But there's another example. We're going to spend more time with this third and final example, where we do know the rest of the story. And it's a very sobering lesson for us. And this was a mighty king, a king of Judah, who at one point showed equally or or maybe more amazing, awesome faith in the eternal. Great faith. But as the years went on, he faltered terribly, terribly. What can we learn from that account? What can we learn so that we can avoid what he ended up doing toward the end of his life, where he turned from God? The king is Asa, you may have guessed. The king is Asa. Asa was zealous at the beginning of his reign, but then his perseverance faltered. He lost his faith later in life in a very sad way. What can we learn about this and from this? I think there are, I'm not going to get into uh, Philadelphia, Laodicea, I'm not going to get into that today, but I think there are parallels. Uh, God does talk about Laodicea, and you'll notice how Asa, uh, we'll see in a few moments, how he did keep God's law. He kept God's law. But you talk about lukewarm, and you talk about failing in so many terrible ways as the years went by, I think there's some parallels that we need to take Heed and and be careful about, because we know the age we live in, the age of Laodicea. Now, before we get into Asa's life, I haven't given you the title yet, holding off on that a little bit, because I want to give away the key here. Before we get into Asa's life, I'd like us to remember, do we remember the seven laws of success? Do we remember the seven laws of success? What are the seven laws of success? Because the key to avoiding the fate of Asa, and the key we're going to talk about today, is buried within the seven laws of success. What are they? Set the right goal, education and preparation, develop and maintain good health, drive, resourcefulness, perseverance, and continuous contact with God. Those are the seven laws of success that Mr. Armstrong wrote about many years ago. Remember those, and in a moment we'll talk about which of those laws was the key that Asa forgot, and which of those laws is the key that we can practice and put into practice even better so that we have no danger in falling 
victim to what Asa fell victim to. A lack of faith and a lack of zeal as his life went on. Who was Asa? Well, Asa was the third king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, he, he reigned around 900 B.C., 910 to about 869 B.C. Uh, he ruled uh, after the kingdom of Israel had been split apart. Remember that Israel was united under Solomon, but then it was split into two smaller kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. We want to set the stage. I think it's very helpful for us to set the stage, to put ourselves into the, the time and the story so that we can learn from these characters that God recorded. You know, God's the one who put, the, who put these stories and put these words in the Bible. As Hebrew says, for our edification, for us to learn, for us to avoid the mistakes that some of them uh, made. Asa's grandfather was Rehoboam. Remember Rehoboam? Not a very wise king, heavy taxation. Uh, that was the catalyst for the split of the kingdom. Uh, Rehoboam wanted to tax more heavily. Asa's father was Abijam, ruled very briefly, very brief. So what you have here is you have a weakened kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. You have Asa who inherited the kingdom from his father, who was only king for a few years. You have his grandfather, which was Rehoboam. This is not a loved household, okay? This is a dynasty that, that wasn't the most stable. Israel and Judah were fight, fighting with each other half the time. You also have a time in history, very interesting time in history, where there was tremendous political instability in the Middle East. Now, we're not getting into a history lesson here, but it's helpful to understand the, the, the stage. There was tremendous political instability in the Middle East. The Babylonian Empire to the north had fallen by this time. The empire had fallen. Babylon was still around, but the empire had fallen. And the Egyptian Empire to the south had pretty much fallen. So these local little powers in the middle, J Judah and Israel and Syria and all these little ites we read about, were fighting with each other for survival and for supremacy. Terrible time. Terrible time. A lot of, lot of uh, war, a lot of instability. They were vying for power, vying for survival. And so at the beginning of Asa's reign, there was about a decade of peace. Let's go ahead and turn over uh, to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. And we'll go through Asa's story. At the beginning of Asa's reign, there was about a decade of peace. God blessed Asa with about a decade of, what well, says, 10 years of, of peace. Second Chronicles chapter 14. So God gives us three chapters here about Asa for us to learn from, for me to learn from, to take lessons from. So let's go through the story quickly, and I'll draw our attention to some, some lessons we can learn. Second Chronicles uh, chapter 14. Abijah, Asa's father, rested um, with his fathers. He died. They buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place, and in his days the land was quiet for ten years. God gave Judah peace for ten years. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God, the Lord his God, the eternal his God. He, he kept God's law for the most part. 
He removed the altars of the foreign gods and the high places. He broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the eternal God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. That is fantastic. Great start. Great start. The Christian race is a marathon. It's not a sprint. For most of us, it's a marathon. Ten years of peace. Ten years of lawfulness for the most part. Remove the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. And you're going to see that uh, some tremendous things happened under Asa's reign. He built fortified cities in Judah. The land had rest. He had no war in those years because the eternal had given him rest. He was close to God. Therefore, he said to Judah, let us build these cities and make walls around them, towers, gates, bars, while the land is yet before us, because we have sought the eternal, our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest and we've, you know, we've prospered and so forth. Verses 8, 9, 10. We have a trial, major, major trial, major emergency in Judah's existence, in Asa's life. He's 10 years into his reign. We're 10 years into being a Christian. I'm 10 years after baptism. Right? You see the parallels. This is 10 years, maybe, after God calls us into the church, called you into the church, called me into the church. We have a big trial. And you can have a trial at any time. Doesn't have to wait, doesn't, God doesn't wait 10 years. But you understand the lesson here for us. You know, things were going along well. He was zealous. I'm sure he had little trials here and there, but then he has a big one. Verse 8. Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah. They carried shields and so forth from Benjamin, 280,000 men who carried shields. These were men of valor. Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against him. So Asa has this mighty army of uh, about a half a million. And then Zerah the Ethiopian comes against him with an army of a million and 300 chariots. And verse 10, Asa goes out against him and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephthah. And Asa cries out to the eternal, his God. And he demonstrates fantastic faith. And he says to the Lord, his God, the eternal is God. Eternal, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O eternal, our God, for we rest on you. In your name we go against this multitude, O eternal. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. He was close to God, and he understood that no matter how big that Ethiopian army was, two times larger, he understood that it doesn't matter to God. It doesn't matter. It's insignificant to God how big that trial is. And so verse 12, the eternal struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. God doesn't give us a lot of details here. How did God strike them? We don't know. But God struck them. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerer. So the Ethiopians were overthrown. They could not recover. They were broken before the eternal and his army. And so Judah carried away much spoil. And then they defeated all the cities around Gerer. And it was just a tremendous triumph for Judah. Verse 15, they took the livestock and so forth, took them back to Judah. 
And then we have this inset chapter, the reforms of Asa. God felt it worth telling us this, that uh, he wanted to recount what Asa did here. Not as exciting as a big battle, but when you read through chapter 15, probably, frankly, more important what Asa accomplished here. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And I believe, my speculation, I believe that God gave us verses 2 and 3 and 4 here. Um, and he recounted that because this was a warning to Asa that God wanted preserved for us to consider. I believe that's why verses 2, 3, 4 are here. God's not wasting paper. God put these scriptures here for a reason. And there's a warning. Azariah comes up to Asa. And he basically gives him a warning. He says, if you seek him, verse 2, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. God felt that it would be helpful for us to record that. You know, if you know Asa's story, he ended up forsaking the eternal, didn't he? So I'm going to move quickly. Uh, notice uh, verse 8. When Asa heard these words in the prophecies of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. He removed the abominable idols. I mean, he got rid of more pagan idols. Asa heard a really corrective sermon. And he took it well and he went home and he got even more zealous. Isn't that good? It is good. I'm not mocking it. That is fantastic. Put yourself in Asa's shoes. So we were called, we were baptized, we're on fire, we're going to the Feast of Tabernacles, we're keeping the holy days, we come to the Sabbath, we're fasting, we're doing our Bible study, we're getting corrective sermons sometimes, we're getting encouraging sermons sometimes, God's letting us have trials sometimes, and we're responding. And Asa responded. At least here he did. Notice verse 9. Some of the Israelitish tribes were so impressed with Asa's righteousness that they joined to Judah and began to keep God's law. Verse 10 is probably the Feast of Pentecost. And they made a covenant to keep God's law. Verse 10, they gathered together. Asa was such a magnet for righteousness, a magnet for God's law. He was the king of Judah, but some of the Israelite tribes came. And they wanted to worship the eternal with Asa and with Judah. They offered to the eternal, verse 11, 700 bulls and 7,000 sheep and spoil and so forth. Verse 12, they entered into a covenant to seek the eternal God of their fathers with all their heart, all, all their soul and so forth. Verse 12, I'm sorry, verse 17, we're going to move quickly. Well, actually, verse 16 is interesting. Uh, apparently, his mother was still involved in paganism and... Uh, uh, it's fertility stuff. I won't describe it. And he um, even took down those uh, obscene images of Asherah. So he's getting rid of the paganism, purging it. Verse 17, but the high places were not removed from Israel. For some reason, Israel, God will often tell you this. He's like, well, they, still didn't, they didn't remove all the high places. Verse 19, there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. The 35th year. It's a marathon. Our lives are a marathon. For most of us, it will be a marathon. Then we get to chapter 16. In this 36 year, this is 36 years of being a king. He had that tremendous trial uh, 10 years in. He's 
he's been a, overall a good king. What happens there toward the end of his reign? You know the story, so I'll move quickly. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So he was barricading one of the major trade routes. Then Asa, what did he do? Did he go seek the eternal like he did 25 years previously? You, you know the story, brethren. Something went wrong along the way with Asa. What a shame. What a shame. Now, to be fair, and when you read the end of the story, God does not say he was the worst king ever. God also doesn't say he was a great king at the end of the story. Just kind of, just kind of ends. I think there's lessons for us here. Warnings for us. Asa apparently kept God's law for the most part during his rule. But he failed. He began to fail. He was not maintaining that close contact with God that he had clearly had earlier in his reign. So what happens when Syria comes up? Did he remember what God did when he delivered Judah against or from the uh, Ethiopians? No. He makes a... Uh, he takes the treasuries from the house of the eternal, verse 2. He, he pillages the house of God and he sends the treasurer to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. That is terrible. How did he get to that point in his life? How did he get there? It's, it's a sober warning. And he made a treaty with the king of Syria. And so Ben-Hadad in verse 4 and 5, he, the king of Syria, he did what he was asked and he attacked the Israelite cities and so forth and it helped and, and um, you know, but he did not go to God like he did when the Ethiopians attacked 25 years previously. Then we have another account where Asa did not seek God first. Or at all, actually. And God, again, records this for our admonition, our warning. Verse 7. At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the eternal your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Eternal, he delivered them from you? You know, one thing that I've noticed, and I know many of you have and many of the ministers will comment on, is that very often God will uh, do very kind and merciful and sort of small. There's no small miracle, just like there's no small sin. But sometimes he'll do kind, merciful things when we're newly converted. Um, I've seen that. Uh, he'll heal. He'll answer prayers in certain ways quickly. Make it make it clear that he's real. That that contract, that covenant we've made with him is real. And I've seen that. I know the ministers and you have as well. Uh, but sometimes 20 years, 30 years, 40 years in, he doesn't give you the instant answer to your prayer. The instant healing. Sometimes he does. Has his, has his arm grown short? 
Are you worse? No, not necessarily on either account. But sometimes he gives us courage early on. And he'd given Asa massive courage early on. And Asa didn't retain that lesson. And so he went to the king of Syria instead at the end of this account. And so Haniah, you know, chastises him for that and says, God helped you with the Ethiopians. He could have helped you with the Syrians. Verse 9, for the eyes of the eternal run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And I'll say my words, those who fear him. But you've done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you'll have war. From now on, you'll have war, Asa. And so Asa repented, right? Verse 10, he got angry. He, he was so prideful at this point in his life that he got angry at the correction. He had become hardened in, 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 in a way. And he oppressed his people, verse 10. And then he gets this terrible sickness, a disease in his feet. The malady was very severe, verse 12. And he did not seek the eternal, but the physicians. He became hardened. And so he rested with his fathers. Very sobering. Do you ever, we shouldn't, Christians shouldn't doubt. Doubt is an enemy of faith. We shouldn't walk around in doubt and fear. But do we ever wonder if we'll run our race successfully with perseverance all the way to the end? The example of Micaiah, the uh, prophet, the midwives, we don't know the end of their story. But with Asa, we, we know. And he kind of fizzled out. It seems like he, well, it doesn't seem, Scripture says he... Kept God's law for the most part, you know, but but he sure didn't demonstrate great faith at the end of his what's recorded in Scripture, did he? We don't want that to be us. We don't want to fall into that apathy, that Laodiceanism that afflicted him. Seven laws of success. One of them holds the key. What are they again? Set the right goal. Preparation, education, build and maintain good health, drive, resourcefulness, perseverance, and continuous contact with God. Mr. Armstrong wrote The Seven Laws of Success back in 1961. And I remember reading it for the first time at Ambassador. And uh, I was just fascinated with it. And so we're going to read from pages 53 and 54 from the book. What is the key that Asa overlooked, that he forgot? Was it the first key, the goal? Was it preparation? What was it? I'll just tell you now, it was the seventh law. It was the seventh law that he forgot. And if you're looking for a title, the title is The Vital Overlooked Seventh Law. The Vital Overlooked Seventh Law. And I have a little colon, lessons from Asa, just because it helps me remember, you know, the, the main story. The vital overlooked seventh law, lessons from Asa. So from the seven laws of success, 
Mr. Armstrong writes, I have reserved this all-important seventh law till last to explain. But far from being least, it is first in vital importance. And I'll explain and show in a moment how this was the key that Asa overlooked. And this is the key for us to avoid the fate that Asa suffered. Mr. Armstrong continues, I've held it till now because, one, it is the very last one that people will acknowledge and apply. Two, being first in making possible real success, I want to state it last so that it will remain stamped in the mind of the reader. When serious illness strikes, people call the doctor. It is automatic for most to rely on human professional knowledge and skill, material drugs, medicines, and knives. But finally, when the attending physician, perhaps with specialists called in collaboration, gravely shakes his head and says there's no more that medical science can do, it is now in the hands of a higher power, then at last people cry out desperately to the creator God, Mr. Armstrong writes. He continues, is it possible that the living God might be a factor in determining the success or failure of one's life? Few have thought so. People will ignore all their lives any idea of divine guidance and help. Now, this is not applied to you and me. God has called us. He's talking about the world here mostly that will, you know, deny any existence of God. But he says, yet if one should find themselves on a waterless raft and shipwrecked in mid-ocean, it is remarkable how quickly he would begin to believe that there's really a living God. Wouldn't it seem, I'm going to skip a little, wouldn't it seem axiomatic that if there is a compassionate, benevolent creator standing ready and willing to give us emergency help as a last resort, it would have been more sensible to have sought his guidance and help all along. Do we ever sort of sometimes not put God first until we really need him? I think it's a human tendency. I'm going to continue here in uh, just a few more sentences from Mr. Armstrong. Yet if we are to enjoy the good things of life, freedom from fears and worries, peace of mind, security, protection, happiness, abundant well-being, the very source of their supply is the great God, since all comes from him anyway. Why not tap the source from the very beginning? And I'm going to conclude with this, and this is the key. The all-important seventh law of success, nevertheless, is having contact with and the guidance and continuous help of God. Now listen to this. And the person who does put this all-important seventh law last, the person who puts this last, the person who waits until it's all gone bad, the person who's neglected continuous contact with God for days and months and years, is very probably dooming his life to failure at the end. Now, I'm not saying that's us, that we're dooming our lives to failure. But we must make continuous contact with God a priority, first and foremost, every day of our lives. Something went wrong along the way with Asa. Something went wrong. Somewhere around years 20 or 18 or 25, I don't know, he was he was. On autopilot, something went wrong with his relationship with God. It says he still kept the law and he took down the pagan idols and so forth. But he sure didn't go to God 
in those last significant trials that uh, the Bible records for us. Continuous contact with God. Again, the title is The Vital Overlooked Seventh Law. Lessons from Asa. You know, there's somebody else who we can think of who is a good example, very good example, and that's Dr. Meredith. He was a good example of someone who preached and practiced continuous contact with God. Mr. Weston wrote about that in the July-August 2017 Living Church News. Let me quote what Mr. Weston from the LCN, July-August 2017, discussing Dr. Meredith's example. He writes, in the case of Roderick C. Meredith, we see a meaningful life. We rejoice at what he accomplished. We see a man who walked with God. We have all heard of his influence on the young minds at Ambassador College. But I doubt that those of us who took his freshman Bible class fully appreciate all that he gave us. Now, notice what Mr. Weston's going to lead up to here. And I noticed this as well. And many of you knew Dr. Meredith very well and worked with him and have known him as, as well. Uh, and I saw this myself as well. Notice what Mr. Weston leads up to here. Not only did he give us the best instruction found anywhere regarding the life and teach life of Jesus and his message, absolutely vital, absolutely, but he gave us much more. He taught us how to apply God's law in our lives on a daily basis. He encouraged developing the habit of daily prayer and study. There's that emphasis on daily continuous contact with God. Mr. Weston continues, uh, says, yes, there were others who taught these values, but no one did more than Dr. Meredith to hold the line and lift our standards. The impact that instruction had on my life is beyond measure, and I owe him greatly for that. How do we stay perseverant? How do we persevere? How do we finish that marathon that's the Christian race? It's very simple. It can be distilled down. Uh, there, there's, there's many things we have to do, right? We, we have to you know, keep all the law. But continuous contact with God. Continuous daily contact with God. Now, King David <clears throat> wrote about a problem, and he gave us a resolution in Psalm 13. Let's turn there. Let's turn to Psalm 13. And I want you to think about continuous contact with God and how close we are in our relationship to God. And in Psalm 13, we have a little formula. We have a little formula in Psalm 13. And what you'll see here is the problem is stated. And this is uh, a psalm, a a supplication, a prayer. And you have the the problem stated where God supposedly has forgotten us. Uh, Let me just tell you, God didn't forget us. And then you have the solution in verses 3 and 4. It's a formula here. It's a very famous psalm. It's an instructive psalm. And it gives us a formula to how to draw close to God and and fix that problem uh, when we feel like we're distant from God. And then there's the resolution in verses 5 and 6. Let's read through the psalm. Psalm 13. How long, O eternal, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, does God really forget us? Does God forget us or do we forget God? God does not forget you. He may hide your face, his face from you, but he does not forget you. We can forget him. We can draw away from him. So the problem here with the, that the psalmist is expressing is where we get to a point in our life, maybe it's 10 years into conversion or 20 or 30 or 40, and we feel worn out and tired out and 
we don't have that zeal and that close uh, relationship that we want to have with, with the eternal, with God. And so that's, the, that's the, the problem being expressed by David. Classic problem. How, how, you know, how long will you hide uh, your face from me? Will you forget me forever? Verses 1 and 2. Uh, having sorrow in my heart daily, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now here we have the solution in verses 3 and 4. Very simple formula. Consider and hear me, O eternal my God. Going to God in prayer, in, in sincere, earnest supplication, in heartfelt, repentant prayer, drawing close to him, that's the answer. This is one of the simplest sermons that you'll ever hear, right? What's, what's the key? Daily, continuous, heartfelt prayer. First, foremost, every morning, every day, every afternoon, in the evening. We're going to go through some practical principles later. Consider and hear me. Draw close to God. Enlighten me. Enlighten me lest, lest I die. Show me where I'm in error. Show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I'm not putting you first. Show me where I've pulled away from you, where I've gotten vain, or I've gotten distracted with life, where I'm not overcoming or trying to overcome some sin that I'm just, you know, indulging. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says I prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. And then here we have David praising God in confidence, knowing that God will answer that prayer. We have trust and faith here. That's what verses 5 and 6 show us. It's a very brief psalm, but it's a formula. And at the end of that psalm, we have David saying, I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the eternal because he has dealt bountiful, bountifully with me. It's a, a fantastic little psalm. It's in our hymnal. We don't sing it very often. It's a fantastic little psalm. And it's very compressed, very condensed little psalm. And it goes through in, in a psalm, and it expresses the problem that we experience in life, feeling distant from God sometimes, feeling like we don't have the strength or faith or the, the, the strength to, to deal, overcome or prevail. And then it goes through and it gives us the answer. To supplicate God earnestly, to have confidence that God will provide, that he will strengthen us, and to move forward in faith. The seventh law of success, continuous contact with God. Like Mr. Armstrong said, it has to be our first priority every day. Whether we're busy, whether we're not. Whether we're travel. here's where I will meddle. Here's the meddling part of the sermon, right? And I'll speak to myself. I used to work in the corporate world and I would get up really early and fly around and go do business trips and so forth. And, you know, I will confess that there were times where I had to get up at whatever, you know, three o'clock or something. And you, you hit the alarm, quick prayer, out the door, right? Shower, you know. Probably shouldn't have done that. You know, when is it okay to cut corners, brethren? When is it okay to cut corners? When is it okay to violate God's law a little bit? 
When is it okay to steal, cheat, lie, covet, commit adultery, murder a little bit? When is it okay to not put God first just a little bit? How about the Feast of Tabernacles? When we're serving and we're busy, is it okay then just to get up, hit the alarm and go? How about a camp? Is it okay then just to hit the alarm and go? How about when we're really stressed out and really busy with work? Continuous contact with God. I'm preaching to myself just as much as, as, you know, as anybody, right? It's continuous contact with God. First, every day, throughout the day. As Mr. Armstrong said, if we neglect that, we may find ourselves get to a point where, you know, we become somewhat lost and we don't have the strength that we need and trials may overcome us. Now, God's merciful and he does work with us patiently, thankfully. I'd like to take some time and give us five keys to improving our relationship with God. Five keys. These are keys that have to do with prayer. These are keys that will hopefully help us to draw into even closer contact with God as we go through the coming months and years of our lives, as we go through that marathon, which is a Christian life. And these keys come from Dr. Meredith's booklet, 12 Keys to Answer Prayer. I'm going to give you five of his 12 keys. Key number one that I'm going to mention is to pray, and this is from Dr. Meredith's booklet, this is actually his key number one as well, pray sincerely to the true God. Now that may seem obvious, but let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Pray sincerely to the true God. Now, all of us understand uh, who God is. We, we don't pray to a, a pagan God. But let's take some, um, some lessons from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 5 and 6. So as we try to move forward in our life, maintaining a continual, continuous relationship with God. Key number seven of the seven laws of success. That is premised on prayer. Now, we know there's fasting, meditation, Bible study, and so forth. But this is premised, that relationship, that contact is premised on prayer. Healthy, regular, zealous prayer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, Paul tells us, uh, For even if there are so-called gods, whether... In heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's only one God, the Father, of whom all things, uh, sorry, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things, and through whom we live. God the Father and Jesus Christ are all. There's no other God. We live in a relationship, an intimate relationship with them. They, God through Christ created all. God through Christ put a plan of salvation in place. We're part of that plan. The entire universe exists because of their will. That's who we're praying to. We don't pray, I know none of us do, but 
We don't pray to Mary or some deceased ancestor. We pray to the creator of reality and to his son who died for our sins and who was resurrected and is ascended back to his father's throne. That's awesome. Key number two, to develop a stronger relationship with God in prayer. Again, from Dr. Meredith's booklet, 12 Keys to Answer Prayer, study the Bible. Study the Bible. Let's turn over a couple pages to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Study the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Why is it helpful to study the Bible? Why does that help our prayer life? I'll answer that in one second. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now, all these things happen to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, on whom the ends of the ages have come. Brethren, God in his kindness, he gave us so much history here in the Bible. Examples and promises and psalms and his law, and it's recorded and it's been preserved accurately for us. And so the more we study the Bible, the more we understand God's plan, the more we understand God's mind, the more we can talk to him about those Israelite um, midwives. If you're looking for something to pray about, talk to God about them. Ask him you know, to give you the faith that they exhibited. Talk to him about Abraham, the father of the faithful. Talk to him about Moses. Talk to him about how thankful you are for Christ's life and Christ's teaching and Christ's beating. Why was Christ's body broken? Why was Christ's blood spilled? Study your Bible. That makes your prayer life richer. You talk to God through prayer. He talks to you through the Bible. Key number three. Important one, uh, deeply repent of your sins. From Dr. Meredith's booklet, deeply repent of your sins. If we want to have continuous contact with God, and if we know that God is righteous, and we know that God will not dwell among sin, we know that God does not condone sin, we know that God does not want to be in the presence of sin, if we are practicing sin, if we are not repenting of sin, How long will God be patient with us? How close can we really be to him? Now, God can hear the prayers of the sinners, and he does sometimes. And, you know, as it says in John, we sin sometimes. But repent of our sins so that we can draw closer to him in prayer. John chapter 9, verse 31. John 9, verse 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. If you're a practicing sinner, if you're just, you know, hardened and just determined just to not repent and you know better, you're just going to keep not doing that or keep doing this or whatever. All I can do is tell you what the scripture says. Repent. Of your sins. I need to repent of my sins. You need to repent of your sins, right? Any pride or vanity, little things, there, there are no little sins, you know. <laughs> any, any little sin, uh, still a sin. Key number, uh, four that I'm going to give you, which is also Dr. Meredith's key number four from the booklet, 
is to forgive others. If we want to have a close relationship with God in prayer, a close relationship with him, continuous contact with him, then we can't harbor anger or hatred toward uh, toward others. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. We don't want to go out and commit sin on purpose just to ask God to forgive us, but if you stumble and you repent and you're forgiving of others and you're kind toward others and you really rend your heart and you repent and you go to God and you say, I'm sorry and I need your forgiveness and I need your help and I need your strength, but also I need your blessings upon the church and I need you to please hear this prayer so that you can intervene for this person who needs to be healed and this person that's having a trial and you're not always praying about yourself only, you're praying about the church and the work and others. If you do those things and if you aren't harboring hatred towards others, then God will forgive you your trespasses. Verse 15, Matthew 6, 15. That's the fourth key to building a strong, intimate prayer life with God. The fifth key I want to give you, I only wanted to give you five of these, uh, is actually Dr. Meredith's eighth key in the booklet. And that is to be persistent. Be persistent in your prayer. Let's turn to, and there's uh, many examples we, or scriptures we could go to, but uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 is, is one of the scriptures that Dr. Meredith used in the booklet uh, regarding being persistent in prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, and actually, let's read verses 16 and 17 both. Verse 16 says, Rejoice always. It reminds me of Psalm 13 when we were reading Psalm 13. It's a great psalm. Please read Psalm 13 whenever you're feeling down. If you're feeling down, read Psalm 13. It's a very compact little psalm of David. And David dealt with some tremendous things in his life, didn't he? His, he had a son taken that, you know, through his own sin and so forth. But David dealt with some, there were people who, uh, who, um, betrayed him and so forth. But remember that psalm. You know, God, why are you far, far from me? Why do I have that, re- I don't have that relationship with you that I need, that I want. Something's not right. That's the beginning of Psalm 13. Then he beseeches God. He supplicates him. He says, show me what I need to change, what I need to repent of so that I don't die. It's not, it's not God who, who went away from you. It's, it's, it's you who went away from God. God doesn't forget you. But we can, we can pull away from God. We can get lazy from God. Right? Let's not do that. And then he, David had confidence at the end of Psalm 13. Remember that? You're going to do it. You're going to give me the answers. I'm going to rejoice. It's a fantastic little psalm. And it's the way, it's the way God works. It, it's a promise. It's the way God works. If you're feeling down, feeling like you don't have the strength to, you know, face the trials, God will give you that strength. But you may have to be persistent with God. It may not be one little prayer. You may have to fast a few times. You may have to pray for hours a day. You may have to pray without ceasing, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. But do that rejoicing. It may be hard. It may be hard to rejoice if you're suffering from an illness, or if you're being reviled, or if you're being put in prison, or if there are lies being made against you, or if you're in between jobs or whatever. But you can rejoice in knowing that you have a Messiah, you have a Savior, you have a God who will hear your prayer who will intervene, who will not leave you and abandon you. 
Have faith. Be persistent. The vital overlooked seventh law. As Mr. Armstrong said, let's make it first in our lives. Let us learn to practice the vital, and as Mr. Armstrong said, often overlooked, seventh law of success. Don't wait until things are going bad. Do it when things are going good. I think perhaps, and I'm not condemning Asa, but perhaps that's what happened in his life, right? He he didn't practice that as much as he should have. You know, we know at the end of the age, God says Laodicea will be lukewarm. Laodicea, much like Asa, has the testimony of Christ, keeps the law. But God vomits them out of his mouth. Things are pretty good, brethren. Wonderful building we're in, and we all have food and clothes, and we're not being persecuted yet, really, you know. Seek God now. Myself as well. Continuous contact with God now. So we can weather the storms that are coming. So let us learn the lesson from the king who forgot to seek the eternal. Let us make continuous contact with God our first priority every day.